The Japanese American Museum of Oregon, located in the heart of Old Town Portland, has a mission to preserve and honor the history and culture of Japanese Americans in the Pacific Northwest, educate the public about the Japanese American experience during World War II, and advocate for the protection of civil rights for all Americans. Leading this effort is the museum's newly appointed executive director, Hanako Wakatsuki Chang. Who is also my guest here today on Stage and Studio on Arts Watch? Now, before we begin the interview, you might be wondering who is this new, not D. May Roberts voice? Well, let me introduce myself. I am Jenny Okoyama, and I've been invited to be a contributor to the podcast. I'm excited to be part of Stage and Studio, and I look forward to bringing you interviews from our local art scene, interviews like the one I have for you today. So let's get to it. Hanako Wakatsuki Chang is a professionally trained public historian, political scientist, and museologist. She serves as an adjunct faculty member at Johns Hopkins University at the Krieger School of Arts and Sciences Museum Studies and Cultural Heritage Management Programs. She was the first superintendent of the Honouli Uli National Historic Site in Honolulu and also served on special detail as the acting chief of interpretation for the Pearl Harbor National Memorial. In 2022, she was selected to work on a six-month detail in the office of the Chief of Staff at the White House, serving as the AANHPI Policy Advisor to the Deputy Assistant to the President on issues and initiatives affecting the AANHPI community. And now, she's the Executive Director of the Japanese American Museum of Oregon. Welcome, and thank you so much for being on stage and studio. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So as we just heard in your bio, your professional work has been largely dedicated to the preservation of Nikkei history, aka Japanese American history. So what draws you to this specific topic? So definitely our family history. My family was incarcerated during World War II over at Manzanar. And I had family, like as I've been researching over the years, uh, incarcerated at Minidoka, Gila, Tule Lake as well. And our family didn't really speak much about the incarceration. And so as I'm, as an adult, as I discover kind of, God, I shouldn't use discover. As an adult, as I learn more about my history, I realize, you know, my family didn't really talk much about it. So I also wasn't raised within a Japanese American community. So this is an opportunity for me to explore my Japanese American identity, learn more about my family history, but also to honor my ancestors by preserving, you know, these uh, cultural heritage sites that, you know, kind of influence the Nikkei community. So how did you initially get interested yeah, so my family, you know, we knew about the incarceration as I was growing up and everything like that, but we didn't quite understand, or I didn't quite understand what camp meant. We only heard about camp. I kind of knew it existed in the background, but I didn't really understand it. So my great-aunt Janie, she wrote Farewell to Manzanar. So when we all were, you know, coming of age, and I'm using air quotes with that, like, you know, when we were third and fourth grade, I just remember my father gave me the book for all and I was like, read this, this is our family history. But as a third grader, you can't really comprehend all aspects of like the themes that are in the book, you know, so it was like, oh, family went to camp. Okay, wasn't that great? Got it, you know, but I didn't really think about it much other than I knew that this was important in our family. But because it wasn't reflected in my public education, I just assumed it was something obscure. And I do remember in high school, my history teacher, he kind of made a mention about Minidoka and having camps, but it didn't quite hit me until I got to college. So I think I was maybe a sophomore in college. And then um, my parents just moved 
to kind of closer to Oregon and Idaho. So it's Middleton, Idaho. So it's really close to the Oregon border. I was late to school so many times that I was about to fail a class because I was too late. So I was staying with a friend and she was like, oh my gosh, I didn't do my homework. I'm going to like fail my test. I was like, what is it? She's like, it's for history. I'm like, oh, I'm a history major. Let me help you. Then she's like, I didn't read this book. <laughs> and it was Farewell to Manzanar. And I was like, oh, let me let me tell you about it. It's my family history. So I was trying to get her all prepped. And then the next day, I guess she forgot most of it. But she just told her professor, she's like, I know this chick's great, great niece. She's like kind of staying with me. And then so that was Dr. Errol Jones. And he was working closely with Dr. Bob Sims, who's, who was the preeminent scholar of Minidoka at the time at Boise State University. So somehow my friend just to get in good favors of Dr. Jones, pass my phone number off to him. I get this phone call and I knew that Bob Sims was, he used to be the former dean of my college. And so I knew his name. So he calls me up. He's like, hey, how long are you in Idaho? And he's like, because I want to work with you on something. I was like, oh, I go to Boise State. And he's like, oh, seriously? And we just had a quick conversation. He's like, I want to work with you on Minidoka. You know what that is, right? And because he was the former dean of my college, I didn't want to sound stupid. So I was like, yeah, of course. And then I went and Googled it. And then I was like, oh, wow, okay. <laughs> so at this time, I, I had to be like 20, like 19, 20 or so. And then I started to work with Bob Sims. And then he got me involved with the Friends of Minidoka. And then that's where I've been involved with like the preservation of Minidoka for the last 16 years or so. Wow, that, that is such an amazing story that this book that is so quintessential, I feel like, to so many uh, Nikkei as the introduction to understanding their own family history is literally your family history that then led you back, or I guess led you toward your own discovery. I guess, yeah, the word discovery is... is uh, reintroduction. Actually, yeah, a reintroduction yeah, to yeah. to your own history. Well, it kind of reminds me of like those shows where it's all like, you know, they're kind of all like looped together where it's like, oh, it's like the genesis is actually like the end thing. And mm -hmm. I feel like it's one of those things, um, at least with with my story. And and this is why it's really important to like, I'm not trying to say kids don't get it, but it's like unless it's like facilitated, like, you know, with a teacher to help talk a little bit more about the themes, just reading it, you know, it was just hard for me as a child without any like guidance to be like, oh, th these are the big themes. Because one of the biggest issues that, like, I guess it's not an issue, but it's just a, a realization is I've been studying this, you know, now for, you know, a better part of like half my life. And I'm always learning something new. But I remember when I was 16, my dad was like, you better ask your grandmother about camp. And I was just like, oh, okay, like grabbed the camcorder, put her in front of it. And then my grandmother was like legally blind. So, and she was deaf. So we had to like write on a whiteboard. So I'll ask her questions. And at the time, like I knew she was like 26, 27 going into camp, but then she'll just talk about her childhood. She's like, oh yeah, when I was a kid, I used to play tennis in the streets. I did this, I did that. And I'm just like, you know, and at the time being a kid, I was just thinking, oh, maybe she's just kind of losing it. Maybe she's senile. But now as an adult and studying this, I'm like, she didn't want to talk to me about this, like the worst time of her life, because at the time she had my Aunt Patty, who I think was an infant, like 
several months old. And then she ended up having four children in camp. Wow. And then, then my grandfather gets drafted into the war. But before camp, you know, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, my great-grandfather was taken away by the FBI. So my grandfather kind of took a little bit more of a head of household role because his older siblings had their own families. And then so my, you know, grandmother ended up kind of being like a surrogate mother to the younger siblings of her in-laws because, you know, her mother-in-law was, you know, taking care of her, I guess, mother-in-law's mother. (laughs) Like, so my great-grandmother, but then also worried about where her husband's at, right? Mm -hmm. So my Aunt Jeannie would always say how, like, she always saw my grandmother as, like, this motherly figure because, like, in one aspect, her mother wasn't emotionally available because she was worried about all this other stuff. And so when I reflect upon it, like, who was I to be like, Grandma, tell me about this worst time of your life? And not, like, at the time, I didn't even realize how probably traumatizing that was. So that's why it's, like, when I do, like, oral histories and stuff, I try to, like, make sure, like, you know, you're working with people to not accidentally traumatize them. Because, you know, in our minds, it's like, oh, we just need to preserve this history. But, you know, it just, it gave me a different look at it. And I still reflect upon it. And, you know, how everyone in life, you know, there's always that one thing where you're like cringe. You're like, oh my God, I shouldn't have done that. And this is one of those cringe moments where I'm like, I wish I never did that. Because I didn't even understand how hurtful that was. You know, it's, how do I put this? It's cringe, but it's it's also... I feel like every Yonsei, you know, fourth generation mm-hmm. Japanese American I've ever met has a very similar story where at some point we approached our grandparents. So it's so difficult because I feel like sometimes, yes, I ask those questions, but at the same time, at what cost was it to ask those questions? But now that history is slightly lost. Yeah. So then I guess getting back to JAMO, I personally really appreciate the work that institutions like JAMO do because of that oral history, you know, maybe didn't exist for some people and are maybe, you know, we didn't, some people didn't even have a chance to meet that generation. And now it's people like you and institutions that uh, really hold that history for, for everyone, especially for people in our community And so for you now as the new executive director, how do you feel that the museum has a place in holding that history and then passing it on to that next generation? So JAMO has the place. It's the, in one aspect, power place here in like Old Town Portland because we're occupying kind of space as a Japanese-American so-called business, I would say, in the historic Japantown. There's not many structures that exist that were actually Japanese-owned businesses that are left in Japantown. Like we had uh, one of the hotels, the Yamaguchi Hotel, just got torn down uh, recently. So there's that power of place of just occupying the space itself to be like, remember, But then as kind of a collective Nikkei community space to then remember our history and culture and our heritage, right, is it also important as, you know, folks are passing on, you know, descendants are, you know, giving some of like their family history to us to be caretakers, which is a great responsibility that, you know, we have. And 
And it's important for any institutions, especially like museums, to, you know, that we have this this responsibility to host the, you know, this history, because if not, it'll get lost, right? Like, I like to think about the Smithsonian and all those larger, you know, nationwide institutions. Yes, they're trying to preserve this history, but it's part of a larger, like, landscape of history. And yes, we're a part of that tapestry or whatever you want to call it. But yet, having a culturally specific museum to be the caretakers of this history in conjunction with the community is very different than from like whether you have the federal or state institutions that are just preserving this history at large, right? We are actually com- coming in from a community-driven way of how we are trying to preserve our history. So I think that that's the difference is that it isn't just for the sake of preserving it, but it's how are we going to use this for our future to then educate the yonsei, the gosei, the rokusei that are coming out, you know? And and then also the greater community, because it isn't just only the Nikkei community that we're servicing. We're trying to service Portland and Oregon and then the Pacific Northwest and hopefully, you know, the rest of this nation to understand that, you know, Japanese Americans are part of this fabric of the United States. And we need to understand uh, the contributions that we made at the local, state and national level to make sure that people understand it. But I do think that as a cultural institution, and specifically culturally specific museum, it's it's a very, it's a very personable way, but then also um, something that that you can't really expect other entities to do it if it's not community driven, and that's that's the very special mission that we have, you know, over at JAMO here uh, to work with our community. And what does that look like when you say community-driven? What are some examples? Yeah, so a lot of that's like, you know, with our board makeup, we have a lot of folks who uh, help guide us on how we want to, you know, set whether it's a policy to run the institution itself as a museum and other larger advocacy stuff. So a lot of it, like with recent uh, things and I know, or you may know, um, she's Sal Hatha, where she's our director of living arts. And she was working really, like, really hard on these programs, you know, kind of fighting anti-Asian hate. And then so you have ORA with the Oregon Rises Above Hate kind of program that got developed out of that, where here it's community-based, where we know that there's these issues. And then the museum sees that there's an opportunity to work with other community groups to elevate you know, the, these issues, but then also to educate, right? And then forming a coalition. And now it's, you know, we're going to, they're already talking about next year's programming and whatnot. So you have that aspect of like the coalition building at the like local level or other issues that are coming up where, you know, with the Yamaguchi Hotel, there's a lot of other stakeholders who are trying to save that structure. And, you know, JAMO, uh, with the help of Lynn uh, Fujigami, parks try to you know advocate to try to preserve that and so there's a lot of like those are a couple examples of how we're trying to do community-based um kind of preservation at that level but it, it goes beyond that too you know just like we have the large picnic that's coming up in August where, you know, we're doing stuff. And a lot of our board members, um, they cross over into other organizations like with Jazzo and, and other folks like Ikonokai. And so all of that kind of goes back into the community building to try to get other people, you know, together to just remember and preserve and, and honor our ancestors. 
So as we're talking about JAMO being a community-driven space, how do you envision all that in the museum's future? Or I guess, what is your general idea about the museum's future? I know you've been here for a short amount of time, but what what are the ideas, immediate, long-term? Well, here, let's let's start kind of more globally. So it's like the short-term aspects is, you know, I've only been here for, I think, a month and a half. So I, I still got a few more months to kind of get all situated. But, you know, JAMO has kind of positioned itself definitely in Portland to be seen as like a leader in the community and whatnot, especially working with like the Expo and some of the other organizations here in Portland with the city and county and whatnot. But I do want to like try to get that more because we are the Japanese American Museum of Oregon to kind of expand more towards Oregon, like at large to work with other institutions and other community groups that's outside of Portland. Because for the longest time before we had the name change and everything, it was just very much like Portland centric. But they've been doing a lot of work, you know, to kind of expand that out and doing work with other communities outside of Oregon. So I do see like kind of growing influence into like um, telling all of Oregon's story of the Nikkei communities that existed, but then kind of working within the whole like Pacific Northwest to kind of make sure that people know of the contributions of Japanese Americans in Oregon and how it contribute to the growth of the Northwest, but then also to then take it nationwide. So that's kind of the long term is trying to get the narratives into, you know, other places. Like I know Lynn has worked a lot with like the National Veterans Network to kind of get some of uh, some Oregonians into the storyline over at the National Army Museum on the exhibits on Nisei soldiers. And I know some Oregonians had been featured with the Smithsonian's exhibit on the Japanese American incarceration over the years. So I think there's other opportunities to try to partner with other institutions and organizations to make sure that, you know, we don't lose that in the national kind of talk of some of these things. So that's kind of at the bigger level, at the smaller level is, you know, continuing to engage with the community and trying to, you know, work with the city and county. You know, there's a lot of social issues that are, you know, happening outside. I don't know when you saw and there was, you know, a person, a houseless person in a tent, you know, and trying to see how we could kind of work with the, the city to try to strengthen, you know, some of the opportunities for other people too. And, you know, not only just focusing on the Nikkei community, but the Portland community as well, and how we could work with other institutions on trying to provide, you know, safe programming and other things for all to learn. But yeah, and I guess with future community stuff, we are doing exhibits on some local folks, you know, like Bill Nido. Um, we're going to be having an exhibit about him next year and doing some community building around that. Our next exhibit is on George Sudakawa. Then we're also doing another exhibit on Bob Shimabukuro. And I believe it's next year is the 45th anniversary of Ikonokai. So we're going to be doing an exhibit with them as well to just talk about some of the Nikkei history that occurred here in, you know, Portland and Oregon and whatnot. And we'll be doing more community program and outreach as well. And then especially with like Chisao Hata, like she's going to kind of get more of her program up and going. She has some stuff like kind of focusing on the assembly centers and whatnot. So you'll see a lot more programming coming out because now we do have like a full team here and we're ready to go. 
Yeah, as a professional historian and someone who really understands the Japanese American history, I'm curious, are there parts of our community's history that you feel like are missing in the general discussion? Because I just know that when, whenever uh, people talk about Japanese American history, it often is focused on World War II. And sometimes, I know when I was younger, it sort of felt like, well, did, did all the history just stop? And, you know, that was like this great <laughs> generation. And, you know, where is my place in this history? Or where is the sansei, I feel like? Do you, do you see any places where you kind of think, oh, maybe we need to amplify those stories more? We need a better narrative. Yeah, well, definitely. I do think that making things relevant and like kind of bringing things up like, you know, past, like at least past the 90s, I think it's helpful because usually when you hear the narrative, you know, it is like what you're saying starts at World War II and sometimes it ends there, but sometimes it'll go to redress, you know, into the 80s. But yeah, we kind of need to bring it out a little bit more to kind of contextualize things. And I think that that's why, you know, even focusing on Bill Nido and his experience as, you know, a real estate, you know, mogul out here, you know, that kind of brings it up a little bit more because, you know, we're not just only focusing on the incarceration or whatnot and the loss of, you know, Japantown. But I do think that there are some narratives that could be expanded on, you know, and this is, I think a lot of it could go into programming just to talk about it. Like, you know, why were Japanese, you know, immigrants coming through? A lot of it was because of the railroads and we don't really talk about that. And if we are talking about World War II incarceration, we're not talking about the folks who are not incarcerated because, you know, that that line for folks to be forcibly removed only went through about half of Oregon. So there were communities like Ontario where people were not incarcerated. And that's where Ontario kind of became that safe haven because I was a, one of the larger Japanese American Nikkei community that existed during the war that was not incarcerated. And then so when people are coming out of Minidoka, then they're like, oh, I know someone, you know, oh, you know, let's look at Ontario as a place for resettlement. And so there's that narrative that we don't really talk about. But it's also like even from the 60s to like the 70s, like we're not really talking about how people reestablish themselves and whatnot in the you know, you know, you get some aspects of the businesses that came back. But what about the new businesses and enterprises that are still flourishing today? You know, so there's opportunities, I think, to kind of cast a wider net. And also, like if you think about it, there's also the Shinike community, you know, where you have a lot of post-World War II um, Japanese Americans and where do they fit in. And I think that there's opportunities to have those discussions, you know, whether it's about identity and other issues and, you know, and also working with like allies as well to have these larger conversations. And yeah, there's just opportunities, lots of opportunities. As someone who, you know, has worked at, at all these different sites where you have lots of different people coming in, especially uh, people from the Japanese American community. I was wondering, do you see generational differences in the kind of questions you're either being asked or the types of things people would like to see, at, whether it's preservation sites or places like this? I'm imagining that maybe Yonsei have different questions than, say, like a Nisei or a Sansei. Yeah, and I guess that this will get kind of stereotypical, so I just want to at least preface that I understand it may sound <laughs> like I'm just, you know, doing broad strokes, but I do feel like the Yonsei and Gosei, a lot of them are more like 
trying to process. So, so they're processing questions that are being asked, whether it's about generational trauma or about their own identity or just things of that nature where it's more of the emotional health and well-being and like, and I guess more therapeutic kind of questions of trying to process. And then with like, I think the Nisei, I feel like a lot of them were more focused on like preservation of like structures and things like evidence-based things where it's like, you can't tell me that this didn't happen. So we need like those things. I feel like Sansei's a lot, again, it's just broad strokes. It's about the legacy where, you know, they're trying to figure out like, you know, where do they fit in? I guess maybe they're like the Gen Xers of our, like, of our, <laughs> of our community where it's all like, you know, they've done stuff, but they're also kind of left alone to kind of figure out their own identity. So then you get the split of like, why are you on says like too touchy Philly, like figure it out. We had to figure <laughs> it out. But then also I do feel some of the Sanseis, they're really like wanting to honor their grandparents and their parents. So it's about like that larger legacy of like, well, now many of them are retired, they had, you know, good jobs, they have saving money, so they're, they're willing to fund the stuff that needs to get done, which is really, really great because, you know, us Yonseis is like, we don't have, like, generational wealth, like, because a lot of that was, you know, taken from us because of World War II, but then we're not economically stable like our parents, you know, um, because we didn't have the same opportunities at the time, like the economic uh, opportunities. So it's like, so we're kind of in this area where sometimes I do see some sanseis are like, why aren't you yonseis doing anything? Like you should volunteer more or whatever. It's like, well, you know, some, some of the yonseis have like second, third jobs, you know, trying to support themselves. And so, um, so you see some of that like friction, but I do see like most of the sanseis, they're trying to find the ways of how do they help with, honoring their parents and their grandparents and they they have at least the the money to help support it so and then as someone who is a director how do you find the balance between serving these different generational needs that's a good question I feel like I'm too new to answer that but you know I think that their strategies is just trying to because I do think we need to reach out to the next generation to make sure that they see themselves here. And, you know, our current installation is, you know, Hapa Me. And that's the Hapa exhibit where it's like, you know, 15 years later, you see like these kids. Uh, well, some of them are kids, some of them are adults, you know, and you kind of see them in two different stages of their lives. And we're trying to find ways to connect with different groups, you know, uh, different generational groups with some of the exhibitions and hopefully with some of our programming, like with, you know, what Chisal is working on and our educator. So we have Alyssa who's working on programs and whatnot. So we're trying to find those ways, how to balance it. You know, I don't have like a formula for you, but we do have to take all of those things into account where, you know, we want to be able to honor our ancestors, preserve the things um, that they want. And the one thing is, it's like, you know, at least we are here at a Japanese-American-owned building, I think, at one point in time, and now we're operating out, out of this this space. So it's like there's that. There's potential opportunities, hopefully, for, like, other, like, uses of building spaces in Old Town. So we'll kind of look at that, you know, from, I guess, engaging the Sansei. It's like, 
we're always accepting donations so <laughs> please help and if you have ideas of you know different things you know they could always reach out to me so my email is hanako at jamo.org so h-a-n-a-k-o at jamo.org and we can talk about that and but you know i do think that we are trying to reach out to the younger generation as much as we can and because it's them that are having children that are going to bring their kids in and we just need to make sure that they understand that this is their space too hanako wakatsuki chang thank you so much for joining me here on this episode of stage and city on arts watch well, thank you so much i appreciated this You can visit the Japanese American Museum of Oregon at 411 Northwest Flanders Street in Old Town, Portland, and online at jamo.org. And that's it for this episode of Stage and Studio on Arts Watch. I'm Jenny Yokoyama. Thanks for listening. Thank you.